Hi everyone, thanks for joining us for our Lean Startup webcast. Today's topic is Scaling Lean. I'm Felicia Chenko, Production Manager of Lean Startup Company. This webcast is part of a series featuring speakers from Lean Startup Week happening on October 31st to November 6th in San Francisco. Please visit leanstartup.co for more information. Ash Moria is the author of the international bestseller Running Lean, How to Iterate from Plan A to a Plan That Works, and the creator of the one-page business modeling tool Lean Canvas. He regularly hosts sold-out workshops around the world and serves as a mentor to several accelerators including Techstars, Mars, Capital Factory, and guest lectures at several universities including MIT, Harvard, and UT Austin. Aubrey Smith is the founder of an innovation strategy consulting firm, a Lean Startup coach, and one of our esteemed training program faculty members. A few housekeeping notes. We will be taking questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please flag it by starting with a Q colon before your question. This is an hour-long program, and the recording will be available after this live webcast. Take it away, Ash and Aubrey. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us. It's a great privilege to have Ash here today. Ash is actually one of the longest-standing members of the Lean Startup community, so I thought we'd start by talking about what brought you to this community, Ash, in the very beginning, and what's kept you here. Yeah, well, thank you guys for uh, having me on the, on the, on the program. Um, I often like to tell people I'm an entrepreneur first and foremost, and I've been an entrepreneur for over a decade. Now, throughout, the t throughout all that time, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I've built many different products. Um, all my ideas started out as awesome ideas, but not all of them went on to become awesome products, which I'm sure many in the audience can, uh, can relate to. Uh, but what bothered me wasn't so much my success rate, because I knew that good ideas are rare and hard to find, so you have to go through that search process. What really bothered me was my cycle time, so the time I was spending from my initial spark of an idea to knowing whether I was going to keep the idea or kill it off was just too long. It was averaging around 18 months, maybe 24 months on some of them. And so at that point, I began to realize that there had to be a better way, not so much to execute on an idea, but to know whether the idea was worth uh, investing in, investing with time. And so that's what's prompted my search. And about that time, that's when I ran into some of the early works from Steve Blank and Eric Reese, and a lot of what they were saying resonated very strongly. And uh, I just jumped in and had more questions than answers. So I first started out as a, as a side project, writing on a blog, taking one of my new products and using that as a test bed. And then one thing led to the other. Uh, next thing I know, I'm writing a book. Uh, and I applied a lot of the lean techniques to the writing of the book itself. And when that book came out, I decided I, I, I liked this problem too much that I uh, sold my previous startup. Uh, it was not a startup at that point in the company and um, built a new startup, Lean Stack, which is what I do today. Great. So talking about books here, so your second book, Running Lean, uh, or Scaling Lean, excuse me, hit the shelf this week. Can you talk to us a little bit about what we can find in it, and who is your audience for this book? Sure. So because I'm an entrepreneur, I write for entrepreneurs. The first book uh, really had the, a, a big idea in it, and that was one of changing our mindset around what's the true product. Um, so I built many great solutions. I thought they were along the way, but realized that fundamentally you have to build a business model that works. And so that was what Running Lean was all about. So it was about that mind shift, think of the business model, not the product, uh, it's not the solution as the product, uh, get outside the building, get customer validation early. That was what that first one was about. Um, once it came out, um, we 
we am bringing the whole lean startup community kind of in, in the fold here is we mobilized a lot of people to get outside. Uh, as they came back with the learning, the next question was, is this idea worth pursuing? And this was a conversation they were having with their stakeholders. And while they were reporting on a lot of learning, a lot of customer feedback, it was still not enough to know whether the idea was big enough to pursue. And that was the key question I wanted to address in the second book, Scaling Lean. So Scaling Lean is more about the, uh, while Running Lean was more about the entrepreneur to customer conversation, Scaling Lean is more about the entrepreneur to stakeholder conversation. And it kind of picks up from, from, uh, from some of the early validation that you might do with customers to how do you size uh, idea worth pursuing, how do you figure out the metrics to go track in the earlier stages, um, and then take it all the way to product market fit and scale. Great. So in your latest blog, you've talked a little bit about the, the idea of experiments. So your first book was a wild success, as was the idea of getting out of the building and learning from customers, which is all a great thing. So people want to get out and talk to customers. They want to launch the latest you know, Google AdWords campaign. All very good. So the idea of experiments has translated. But as you and I know, as practitioners in this space, there's a series of things that are very important that precede the experiment. That is asserting guesses, understanding what those guesses mean. Can you talk to me about the concept of the guess and talk to us about how do you get from a guess to an experiment? Sure. So we, we, we definitely um, recognize experiments as a key activity. And that's what powers the build, measure, learn loop. And I describe that cycle as, as an example of, a, of an experiment and innovation. Um, but it, again, begs the question of, of if we can run experiments, what experiments should we run and how should we run them? And so to answer that, I decided to take kind of a detour into the scientific world. And I began reading a lot on the scientific method, um, got to interview some scientists that are you know, true practitioners today. And what I found out is that before running the experiment, something comes uh, uh, that's much more critical. The, the, key, the experiment is not so much the key activity, but rather it's figuring out the guess that you want to go test. Um, and those guesses really come from models. Uh, so I, if you uh, any fans of Richard Feynman uh, can go and look up a, a, a video of his where he talks about the scientific method in very simple terms. He says fundamentally scientists come up with guesses. They then compute consequences of, as a result of you know, using the guess to, to project what might happen. And then they run experiments to validate or invalidate those guesses. So that's kind of a, if you bring this into the world of innovation, the way we make guesses is much like scientists, we need to start with models. and the Lean Canvas or the business model is a great example of one such model. And in the past, we would use business planning for that purpose, but it kind of ha comes from the same place, which is you have to have some kind of a plan in place, which even though maybe flawed, at least draws a line in the sand and talks about what you think will happen, and then you have to go and empirically test against that. How do you know which guesses are the right ones to begin with? I know this is a question I get often, a lot of times with internal uh, enterprise entrepreneurs, because the idea isn't always theirs. But but it's a it's a tricky one. What's first? How do you know what is most important? Yeah, so I, I think at the very earlier stages, I tend not to get people thinking about a, a good guess versus a bad guess, but more get them to declare some of those guesses, and then really. Um, using some techniques like five whys, which is asking yourself progressively why five times, try to get into some some reasoning behind those guesses. Um, and oftentimes you can get a bit more specific that way. Um, so the world is full of biases, and we entrepreneurs are no different. And one of the biases I talk about is the solution bias. 
So if you go and ask an entrepreneur what they want to do, they already have a solution in their head. And if you ask them what problems it solves, they'll just take the solution and kind of back away and say, since I'm building a photo sharing app, obviously sharing pictures or photos or videos has to be a problem. And they'll they'll come up with reasons. But if you just in, uh, engage them in that inquiry of why do you think those are problems, we can sometimes expose maybe some of the flawed assumptions, which is where the risks lie, which is what you then need to go and test. So that's that's a good conversation to have. Uh, but even outside that, even if the, the, the plan looks good on paper, the next step is really getting outside and putting it into action. So unlike in the past where we would spend several weeks or months doing business cases or business planning, I tend to encourage the teams I work with to time box the guest making activity to maybe half a day at most if you're doing it as a group. Uh, but then really prioritize what might be the most critical guesses that if we get wrong, everything in the model just falls apart and go outside and try to get some evidence on whether we are even in the right ballpark or not. Okay, so what's the first step to kind of this time box planning that you described? So how do I get my team, all of which may have different ideas about what's most important, what they think is sexiest about our feature set, all of these things, how do I get a group of individuals to agree to test common critical things? It's a, it's a, that's a hard one, I think, for most teams. Sure. So if we were starting with a, with a new idea, uh, I would often have the teams to really go away and take a first stab at this Lean Canvas. And the Lean Canvas, for those that may not know on um, the call, is a one-page business model. You can call it a one-page business plan. And unlike a, a full business plan, it doesn't take you very long to write. Um, it all fits on a single page. And it has some very approachable boxes, like who is your customer? Uh, what problems are you solving for them? What might you build? So what does the solution look like? Um, how would you measure? So there, there's a section there on key metrics. And then what's in it from a business model sense? What would it cost to, to create? Um, and what would be the revenue stream? And then there are a few other boxes, but those are the critical ones. And so I tend to, whenever I work with teams, um, it's very easy to fall into groupthink or hippo thinking. Hippo is a term mm -hmm. from Amazon. Um, so rather than getting them in the room brainstorming, I have them go away and take their first steps at the idea. If it were even an existing product, this may be a new release or even a new feature. Um, but go and understand what customers you want to serve, what are, what are the problems you want to address, how might you address them, and then have people come back into the room. And then that's where we either use a giant canvas and have people with post-it notes put up their ideas. And you can then visualize all these ideas very, very quickly. And then the conversation that ensues helps to, again, get into some of those root causes. And, and so there are ways that people can back, can, uh, back their guesses. It could be root cause driven, which is, I can reason my way, and this is what I what I think is true. Um, it could be data-driven, so there may be data that you've collected, um, like customer service requests or your backlog of features. Uh, but that conversation is what I think will help prioritize the, 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 the better ideas. I wouldn't say the best ideas, but the better ideas to then go test. And then the next step is crafting a small, fast experiment to go and, and test some of those assumptions and those guesses. So in that, do we throw away the, the idea of the business plan, or is there a role for the business plan in this, in this model? Yeah, so I, I want to be very clear that I'm a big fan of business planning, not so big a fan of the business plan itself. Um, and the reason for that is that I find that the business plan is too heavy a document. It's too static of a document. Uh, the worst part is that the people who usually make you write it ask for the more condensed version anyways. So it's an exercise in critical thinking, and so it
it's a good exercise to go through, but we don't have to write a 60-page document to, to run through that exercise. We so don't. <laughs> so, so, but, but at the same time, I find that too many people throw the baby with the bathwater and they don't do any planning now, uh, which is the other extreme. So a no plan yes. alternative, not a very smart idea, because while you can change your idea very quickly, those biases catch up with you, and pretty soon you are, you are fooling yourself, because we are the easiest people to fool. That's another Richard Feynman quote. Um, so yeah, so very important to at least draw some line in the sand. And I find that the canvas, as simple as it seems, when people actually take the time to put something on it because it all has to fit in a single page, it forces them to be a lot more concise. It forces them to really be careful with the words they use, and that in itself makes those those that story be a lot stronger. So I find that's a nice middle ground. Again, one of the things I found is that the canvas itself uh, cannot replace every complexity in the business business plan or the business model. So it's a starting it's a starting tool. It's not meant to be the entire thing. And that's some of the criticisms you often hear is it can't capture everything and it's not supposed to. But what I find that's important is that it starts the conversation. Um, when we when I do these workshops, within 20 minutes you are have you get entrepreneurs on stage and they're not pitching their solution, they're talking about their business models and the conversation that ensues is just a lot more productive from there from that point on. Speaking of business plan conversations, so most entrepreneurs are not dying to write a sexy business plan or you know put a PowerPoint presentation with you know an Excel model in it. It's just not what they're dying to do. It's painful. Actually, the exact opposite behavior occurs in enterprises. People are too apt to, to create elaborate plans, works of art, if you will. So it's interesting dichotomy there. But the idea is what they're building something for are their stakeholders. So stakeholders in this whole game have a critical role to play. So funders, et cetera, they want to see those sexy plans. Talk to me about the role of those stakeholders and what, what you'd like to see change in their minds. Yeah, so we have to change the conversation. That I think a lot of people have been talking about that over the years, is that we can't use the same metrics to judge early stage innovation projects or startup projects as we would more established uh, companies or, or products. So that conversation has to change. But at the same time, for this, for this book, I, I started asking myself fundamentally what is it that both entrepreneurs and stakeholders want, and the image of the hockey stick curve comes to mind. You know, if you go into an investor's office with that hockey stick picture, they're not going to ask for anything else. They're going to sit you down and really get into a very meaningful conversation. They won't ask for the business plan or anything for that matter. Uh, the problem with the hockey stick curve though is, as we know in the world of the lean startup, we talk a lot about vanity metrics. And while we use words like traction and hockey stick curve, we sometimes don't quite understand what they mean. And so I went in search for a definition of traction, which would be business model specific. And those are some of the things that I, I cover in the book. But if we can start with what does traction really mean then both internally and externally, both with our teams and with our stakeholders, rather than having this dichotomy of progress stories, we can start with one kind of story on what does it mean to make the business model work. And I think that is what's a healthy start to making this actually work in that setting. When I think of traction, not to be too crude, crude here, I think of sales. I think of dollars coming in. Is that too simplistic? What should I be thinking about that may not that may not include? Yeah, yeah. So, so revenue is obviously a big part of it. Um, the only problem with revenue is that revenue is usually a side effect of something else happening. Um, revenue can also be gamed. So, we sometimes find people do creative accounting to get their 
revenue looked good and that they passed out of extraction. Uh, but going back to kind of leading indicators, the problem that I have with just looking at current revenue is that it doesn't tell us how to find new traction or new growth in the business. And one of the examples I give in the book is Starbucks. So Starbucks was doing well as a company, they were a coffee shop, but one of the things they began to realize is that there was a small sub-segment of their audience that was spending a lot more money with them. And once they studied that, they found out that that group was not just buying coffee from them, they were buying meeting spaces from Starbucks. So they would come in there, and even though they were, the bathrooms were locked, the sofas were not comfortable, there was no free Wi-Fi, they were just hanging out there and buying a lot of coffee throughout the day. And so they reached this and they doubled down on this. So that's a great example of how time spent in store for them correlated with future revenue. And they began to invest in that when they rebranded the company. Fast forward today, Starbucks is more than just a coffee company. Uh, they even have wine and beer now because once you think of I'm selling you a meeting space, it doesn't matter whether I have coffee or wine or beer. I'm going to put anything in there that gets you to come and spend time with me. And that's done very well for them. It's funny that you say that. I actually went to my local Starbucks recently, and they just rolled out that beer and wine um, product line. And I asked them, what time can I start drinking in this store? And they actually told me 2 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. So if we think about the idea of traction, in reality, what you know, traction is either there or not. And it's related to our conversations about traction internally as a team. So getting back to these conversations of the team that matter. So we don't all judge traction the same. Certain people, the CFO might see traction as funding. The CEO might see traction as smiles on his customers' faces. How do we keep teams who are responsible for bringing products to market on the same page? What's important there? Yeah, so I'm a business model guy, and so I go back to the business model, and I look at traction has to be the output of a business model working. And if we look at the definition or the job of a business model, we do three things with the business model. We create value for customers, we deliver value to customers, and then we capture value back from customers, which is the revenue stream. Uh, one of the key insights there is that all of these three things are with respect to customers. And so in the example you just gave, funding is not a, a measure of traction. That could be a side effect of you having good traction, you get more funding. But the traction metric, the y-axis of that hockey stick curve has to measure some customer behavior because the customer behavior is what's going to drive you know, future, future growth in the business. Um, and then as to what specific thing you measure, the thing that is fundamental in any business is monetizable value. So how do you actually show a return or how do you actually, for creating value, have a quid pro quo with your customer? And so I generalize the definition of traction to being at a very high level the rate at which a business model captures monetizable value from its customers. Now, in the case of Starbucks, that monetizable value was being captured, yes, when they were selling coffee, but the real value was being captured in that space they were creating. And that's what they began to realize, and that shifted their whole, their whole kind of strategy going forward. Um, in other businesses like a Facebook, where you have a multi-sided model, even there you have users and customers, and traction there can also be defined. So we have free users, but I often will argue there's no such thing as a free user. All of us that use a service like Facebook pay Facebook with a derivative asset, our attention, our data, which is what they will then use to trade with their true customers' advertisers. And so there, too, we can come up with a measure of traction that is very, very clear um, once we start to think in terms of customer and user actions um, and measure only those things. Great. 
so this whole idea of, of, of finding measurable um, elements of value, monetizable elements of value, speaks to the idea of both um, or sort of growth potential, but also constraints. So the world isn't our oyster all of the time. We have certain assets that we want to leverage. We have certain core skill sets. We have certain things that we're starting with. How do you know what is something you should go after, and what is a waste of your time? Yeah. So, I, so that's a that's a great point that you raise. And and you know, no two no two um, even though business models on paper might look alike, no two teams will execute them in the exact same way because of their constraints. Oftentimes, we don't quite know what that is. And so the way that we, I often describe the entrepreneurs as charged with going and creating something out of nothing. So they are charged with this idea of, let's explore an opportunity. And then, of course, we have to um, limit that with, our, our, uh, with the constraints that we have in front of us, and whether we have to acquire more resources. So the whole point is that how you deal with your constraints is ultimately going to decide which business model gets gets how you know how how big that business model gets. Um, at the same time, I, I would say that you know when you're starting this analysis, it's really a question of let's start with the goal. So even on paper, I find that oftentimes constraints aside we don't even get basic business model fundamentals right. So I talked about create, create, you know, creating value, delivering, and capturing. But even the sizing of the business model, let's start with a, with a constraint of what the outcome should be. So I, I see this a lot with, um, with startups and accelerators sometimes. Just like we have couch surfing, we have accelerator surfing now. And I was in three different countries, and I saw the same team in three different, in three different accelerators with the same idea. And wow. so I sat them down and really asked them, you know, this idea is not going to get funded. You, you, you managed to do a good five-minute demo, and you get into these accelerators, but you're really wasting your time, which is the scarcest resource. You need to figure out either bootstrap this and go do it a different way or, you know, change your idea completely because you're, you're not getting younger, and it's kind of the same, same thing, that, the same moment that I had, is that time life's too short to keep doing this. And um, I see that in the corporate world, again, we get lots of ideas, and we pitch the solutions, and they seem good, and we go on. But nobody ever figures out how will we de define success? Uh, how will we know whether this idea actually works? Um, so I often will say, before even the constraint piece, the key question to ask is, what is our minimum success criteria? If we could wave a magic wand and go forward two or three years into the future, not five years or 10 years, but two or three years, what is that minimum success criteria for this idea? And let's put a plan, and we can see that far in the future, let's put a plan on paper that can at least get us there. Now, if we can get there, we can, no one ever penalizes us for revising our goals upwards, we can increase that, that goal. But even getting there, that's where I find the best way to expose constraints is really to start executing on, on this short-term plan, and the constraints will very quickly uh, bring themselves up. Um, so in the startup world, I see many startups that want to go sell to enterprises. You know, they're all they have a great plan on paper. They've thought of the solution. You know, it should meet the needs. Um, all this was done through, you know, thinking. They didn't go out and validate anything. But that's all fine. So my next thing to them is, let's go set up some interviews. Let's go and make some calls. And usually after two weeks, there are zero calls that were made, um, not enough conversations happened. And that's an example of a channel constraint. So the constraint exposes itself very quickly. So for me, in my book, I tell people, you know, start with the goal, start with the plan, do some of that planning. But once you start running the experiments, where you get those unexpected outcomes or failures, when you dig a bit deeper, 
that's where the, the root causes are of why you aren't able to execute on this. And maybe it's faulty thinking, but maybe it's some other thing like a channel constraint or a team constraint or a, a technical constraint that you have to overcome. Our gut reaction to constraints typically is they're a negative thing. We think, well, we can't do something or we don't have something. It's always sort of this negative version of it. Yeah. But the way I like to think of constraints is that they require us to think more creatively. They, they almost instill an innovative mindset in, in our team and thinking. Have you seen that in real life? Like, When can constraints actually help us? Sure. Um, so I, I've bootstrapped a number of my businesses. And like you know, all entrepreneurs, I wish I had infinite money, infinite resources. <laughs> but I found that in, in, my, in my career, when I've had excess of resources, I've become very wasteful. And I've just kind of poured it all away, you know, whether it's time, whether it's people, it's money. And so I find that even if you have that, and that's some advice that you will often hear, is that even if you have a million dollars in the bank, um, you know, hide it away and, and pretend like you don't, because those constraints will force that action, will force force that creativity and, and help you focus on the real things that really matter. Um, and I think that money is one of those things that we I look at it as an accelerant. You know, more money doesn't mean you're going to figure things out. It just means you're going to do whatever whatever you're doing already, you're just going to do more of it. It doesn't mean that you're going to make any make some big insights. So if you're building a product, you'll just build more product. If you were out there doing marketing, you'll do more marketing. But if you're not really identifying some of those constraints that are holding the business model back, you're not going to make that breakthrough. So, so I do think that constraints are absolutely important. The other thing is that constraints are always there. Every, every system and every business model has a constraint. And in the book, I have a whole section on the theory of constraints. And the idea is that if we can start to identify some of those key constraints that are holding us back, we can then kind of double down on those and really make some forward progress instead of doing a lot of little of, of nothing and not making as much progress on, on anything. And I think one of the reasons that constraints are so negative is that we think, OK, constraints will then translate into failure. And failure is what we all, in reality, as humans, want to avoid. Sure. But in the terms of experiments, failure is productive in some sense. Talk to me about what do we do with failed experiments? Why aren't they such a bad thing in your mind? Yeah, so if, if, you, if, you start, if you start studying a bunch of discoveries, things like penicillin, microwave, x-ray, gunpowder, even Google's auction-based ad system was not their invention. They borrowed it from a competitor and you know, ran an experiment, and it worked well for them, so they doubled down on it. But that was an accidental discovery as well. They were, that's not what was part of their master plan. And so I find, and if we kind of logically think through it, we talk about breakthrough insight. Breakthroughs only come when we don't quite know that we knew something which meant that there was some kind of a failure along the way. And it's easy to rationalize that when we, when we speak logically, because if you knew what was going to happen and it always happened that way, then there was no breakthrough there. So we all We'd want... also be very rich, I would say. <laughs> if you knew what was going to happen, you wouldn't right. be sitting here. No. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. yes. Sorry for interrupting. Um, but, but again, so I, I think the key thing, in, in, in whether it's in science or, or even in business, is that when we see failure, the, what all those scientists and discoverers did is rather than throwing away the experiment as a failed experiment, they asked a very critical question, which is why did this thing happen? And they studied that phenomenon, and that led to some discovery, which then led to some bigger discovery after that. Um, now, in the entrepreneurial world, we often, as you said, there's a big taboo around failure, so we hide away from it. We use words like pivot, which is, of course, a misuse of the word. Uh, but we use pivot as a way to say, I had a failure, so I'm just changing my mind. But a pivot not grounded in learning is just a disguise, see what sticks strategy. 
is you can change your mind all you want, but you're still just guessing without any evidence that what you're going to do next is going to work, and that's just a very suboptimal way of finding breakthrough. So a much, and it's a, this is a hard scale, but this is what scientists do and entrepreneurs need to do as well, is that when we see failure, I'm not saying go out and celebrate it, but definitely go out and study it. So if you have a landing page and people aren't buying, don't just change up the page because you think a better color will do or a better value proposition will do. Go and try to interview, use some back channels, use, use a, a chat widget or something to try to figure out why people aren't buying. And it only takes a few responses to create a whole different trajectory in what you might do next. And to me, that is fundamental to making those, those breakthrough insights. Um, so oftentimes, when I, when I, I have this quote that I often will use uh, in, in my workshops with entrepreneurs, um, it's a Buckminster Fuller quote, and he is a celebrated scientist. And he kind of said that there's no such thing as a failed experiment, only unexpected outcomes. And I think that should be taken to heart, is that as scientists, we're building models, we're building a business model, we're trying to make some predictions on how customers will behave. So I, I give them this value proposition at this price, they come and buy at these numbers. And if that doesn't happen, rather than calling it a failure, it was just our model that was faulty. So let's figure out what's wrong with the model and adjust it and then move from there. And I think that's a more healthy way of looking at failure and success and, and not using those words kind of in that sense. So failure is also somewhat problematic in conversations with our funders. And our funders matter a lot oftentimes because our, 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 we can only go so far as we're able to with the money that we have and the time that we have. What are conversations about failure, about things that didn't go right, like with our funders? How should yeah. we be having those conversations? So I, I'm a big fan of regular kind of reporting. Um, and the analogy I'll often give is that if you were running late for a meeting, and you got on the highway and you know you're going to be 30 minutes late and you don't tell anyone, you show up there, everyone's going to be upset. Um, it's the same way as you know the business is not working and you wait a whole quarter, you're going to get fired uh, when you have the bad news. And if you we first try to hide it, and then that's that's the, 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 uh, the outcome of hiding something that you cannot hide after a while. But if, on the other hand, you, were, you got on the highway and you knew you were going to be late, you start texting people saying you're going to be five minutes late and then 10 minutes late, uh, people might come up with creative solutions, they might offer alternate routes, and if you just still can't make it, they might be upset you didn't make the meeting, but at least you've kept everyone up to date and they will reschedule or do something constructive with you. Um, I, I'll use that same analogy with, um, with, with the way we talk to our stakeholders, is that if you can create frequent progress updates where you are sharing kind of the metrics, we, we, we recognize the business model, we recognize the traction metrics, and you can run your business like an aquarium, and I know this may sound a bit utopian to some, but if we can get into that, start with your advisors, start with your teams first, but I feel that stakeholders are people too. They, they can offer a lot of advice in the, along the way other than just the money that they bring to the table. And I feel that if we can have those conversations, I've been amazed at how productive those conversations become, and it's less success theater, and it's more of a problem-solving meeting, which is what it's fundamentally about. Um, at the same time, this is a, on the entrepreneur side, is that there needs to be a detachment of the business model outcome with personal success. So our jobs in the early stages is to find a business model that works. And if you can prove with absolute certainty, or and there's no, nothing is absolutely certain, but with reasonable certainty that this business model will not work and you've got five or ten reasons why, the right thing to do is to pause that idea or reset that idea and go pick the next best idea. And so I think 
as on both the stakeholder and the entrepreneur side, if we can start having that kind of healthy conversation, um, I think you will you will change the trajectory in 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 terms of how we define success to even be, uh, to, to start with. Yeah, no. So I, I love your advice to not not hide the truth, but actually get ahead of it. So don't wait till mm -hmm. after that meeting or in the meeting to tell them that something's bad. Um, okay, so I think it's a great moment to start to take uh, audience questions. We have quite a few, and some of them piggyback off of this topic. One of them is really how do you determine what the monetizable value is if you aren't yet making money from it? For example, in the Starbucks example, realizing that the value was from space, not coffee, you're actually not making money at that time. How do you know what those things are? Sure. So it's a great question, and, and I would say that in the earlier business model that you put out there, you really need to talk about those three things, which is how do you create value for your customers? So that usually is your value proposition. How you deliver it? So that's your solution. You know, in the case of Starbucks, we create. They, they, they didn't start off in the spaces business. They started off in the coffee business. So for them, initially, traction was all about selling more coffee. Um, what I described was, you can say, a pivot in their business model where they found a much bigger opportunity. Um, it was an accidental discovery also, where they began to see that the customers that were coming to the store were behaving rather differently, and they could then stand to capture more value by selling them space than selling them coffee. So that was a switch in their case. But to answer the question more directly, um, there are a few business model archetypes. I describe one-actor models where you just have a user who becomes a customer, and that's where you can start to ask, how do we create, deliver, and capture value for that one person? And that's where the monetizable value is, is, is extracted from. In the multi-sided model like Facebook, you have users and customers, and there there's this concept of the derivative asset. So even if you are doing the Facebook and the Twitter thing, which is very popular these days, which is give away your stuff for free, there has to be a quid pro quo. There has to be either data or user-generated content or something that you're getting back that is potentially monetizable. And you may not even have to wait that long to test it. So if you are building the next engaged community, you could you could call up a few advertisers and do and test the pricing of putting an ad on your community or, or reaching your community in some way. There are all kinds of things you can do very early on. So there, too, we can figure out what that, that currency of exchange is. And finally, the marketplace, I'll just touch on this one. If you have a marketplace model like eBay or Etsy, there the transaction metric is not how many buyers or sellers you have, but rather how many transactions are playing out in your system. So if you had an Airbnb with thousands of hotel listings, I would congratulate you. But if no one's renting any rooms, then you don't yet have traction by that definition because you're not you're not creating monetizable value at that point for yourself or your customers. Uh, so to me, in, in a marketplace, it becomes simple. You start off, if you can week over week show number of transactions going up, uh, that is an element, that's a measure of traction. And if you kind of get stuck because you're not increasing that rate of growth, then you figure out what the constraints are that are holding you back. You may have to expand markets, expand categories, do all kinds of other things. But that becomes the secondary question to ask. But the first one is, are you making progress in that business or not? Right. I mean, so the whole the whole process begins with identifying something. You don't have to be right or wrong, and then going to start to test it. So, in the example, what I heard you say in the example of Starbucks is, one, the first behavioral change is starting to look for these these components of monetizable value. So, what are those variables that are driving people to pay for something, right? Yeah. And then going to test them, actually testing them. So instead of either asserting and launching a product testing whether or not that's really a real thing, whether the problem is truly a problem or the solution solves for that problem. 
um, very, very good. So we have quite a number of questions, so we're going to keep going. Sure. Um, so one is specific, but I think it, it applies to a lot of, of other contexts. We're a dev shop with a startup client who is targeting enterprises. They're scared to bother these customers by sharing the unfinished product. How do I get them to not waste time? What do I tell them? Yeah, so often I, I find that before even the product, we have to start with the offer. So the kind of the traditional way that we we have we have done things is we build something and we go and demo it and then we sell it, and we have to flip those around. You have to demo first, sell that demo, and then you go build whatever it is you're building. And in that process, when customers actually begin to see the thing that you are demoing to them, there's a lot of conversation that ensues, and that's where. You can negotiate. You can negotiate on pricing. You can negotiate on scope. And for me, that is the process for how you figure out the right minimum viable product to build. Is it really minimum enough that you can launch instead of waiting for something to be built? So that conversation I saw a lot of, we have an unfinished product. To me, I would say customers don't care about your product in the beginning. They care about what it does for them. So go and pitch that and go and sell that and demonstrate that. And you don't, have a, you don't need to have a working product to actually go and do that. Um, if you hit the right problems, people will give you the benefit of the doubt and have the conversation. And sure, you have to build something, but at least even getting through those initial conversations to me is is more easily said than done. You know, have have be, be able to carve someone's time out and have the opportunity to even demo them. That to me is that first constraint you need to get over and forget about the finished solution at this stage. I think here we're talking about fidelity of data to some degree. So some teams will accept and some funders will accept certain levels of data around a non-unfinished product or an MVP or a prototype. Others won't. Sure. How do you kind of how do you make that decision as a team and what do you do with it? So you're you're, you're talking like maybe the interest kind of how do you gauge the interest level? Well, no, I'm talking about the level of um, technology of your prototype. So most teams fear. I hear often. Most teams fear, I, I don't want to go test something that's not finished, or it's just a brochure, it's just a landing page, because I can't do anything with that data, or my funders can't. There's sort of a, that data isn't going to lead to an action. How do you strike the right balance with sure. the current version, the minimum viable product, and the data that you have to use to take an action on it? Sure. So. Again, I'm, I'm more of, and this is where the question of even statistical significance sometimes come in, is that I want to do something really big, and what's you know, talking to five or ten people going to teach me? Um, from experience, I've found that oftentimes you get more invalidation than validation in the earlier stages, and we're trying to you know, avoid that. So if you went and built the perfect product but nobody bought it, that would have been an awful waste of time, money, effort. But if you went and built a perfect demo, which takes you far less time, and nobody bought it, you could come back and change the demo ten times till somebody said, "Yes, I want this." Um, now, how many you know how many people you need? That some will somewhat come from your traction models, um, and there too, there are a lot of. This is now going into more tactics, which is we don't want to kind of end in. Um, Kind of the nice to, kind of the, the polite. This is interesting. Uh, you know, come back when you have something to show me. Um, when I do these demos, I give the impression that we have something that's in the lab or it's being built right now um, that will be launched here very soon, and it's a real product. And we really try to measure again customer actions. So show me the money, you know, write me a check, um, or get on some, write me a letter of intent, or get on some kind of a launch list. 
um, but some action which, even if it's a micro-commitment, or give me permission to go and pitch to your CEO or CIO, um, all of those are micro-currencies that you can use in the very early stages to uh, to serve as some of those leading indicators. Uh, so it's, again, I, the way I would say it is to think of it more as a progressive leveling up. Um, if, if everything checks out well and you are moving along, then accelerate the plan. But oftentimes I find that people have to come back and get some of those fundamentals right a few times before they actually move on to building the finished product. I think this is a good next question about early indicators. So how do you identify the early adopter? We deal with a complex buying organization, or we deal with complex buying organizations. Often these seem to be slow. What characteristics surface of early adopters? Yes, so, so that's, a, that's a big question, and, and in the, so the first problem solution fit stage that I talk a lot about is really two things. We're trying to, on the one hand, identify those early adopters that have the problems we are trying to address, the problems we stand to address with the resolution, they have those pressing problems the most. And just like we sometimes joke that if you had product market fit, um, if you ask whether I have product market fit, that's kind of a dumb question because you would know. It's just obvious. Um, I find the same thing with problem solution fit. Is if you can identify an early adopter that has this pain and you go and describe it, you, you don't even have to talk about your solution. You just describe the problem. Um, they'll grab you by the collar and start asking you, you know, what do you have that can help me in, in this instance? Um, so so I'm, I'm not answering the question because it is a hard one. So in the beginning, we are going to take some guesses. So you have to start by going narrow. So figure out your addressable market. Try to figure out what might be some of the demographics. But I'm more interested in psychographics. What trigger happened with these early adopters recently that may cause them to be a good, good early adopter for you? So one of the products that I talk about in my last book, Running Lean, that I had built was a photo sharing app. And I was targeting parents, and I quickly realized that not all parents were the same. Um, if you went to a first-time mom with, this, with, a, with a newborn, uh, maybe first child, there's going to be this big trigger in her life where she's going to be a lot more, uh, her world has changed. There's going to be a lot more receptive one way or the other to the idea. And that was something that I did not know going in, but I had that, that hypothesis, and I went and tested it, and sure enough, it, was, it, it proved to be correct. Um, so I, I would say that you have to start by guessing. At the same time, just like we've done experiments, you're casting a wide net. So test your early adopter assumptions with those that may not fit that mold in the beginning. So talk to anyone that you can and begin to see which ones call you back for more, which ones engage with you more. And that's how you start to home in on who might be the right early adopters. Even in the complex sales environment, start anywhere in the enterprise and always be asking for referrals and always be asking for more conversations um, and try to first understand the problem from their point of view instead of getting into pitch mode. So these are all like kind of very tactical things, but those are the ways that you uncover those early adopter criteria. Yeah, and what I've seen in practice often is at complex big organizations, uh, clients tend to go directly to the people who are their friends, who will tell them what they want to hear. Oftentimes that's not the best starting point. Though it's yeah. the quickest to start to learn, it may not be your skin-in-the-game test. It may not tell you that someone's going to buy this thing, right? Sure. So it's a, it's a very hard situation to navigate. Here's another one that's similar. What if you're working with a B2B2C product where the ultimate success depends on a partnership, obviously, with a value chain member, with product integration with that member, not just channel sales? What's the effective way to get commitment? Where do you go from there? Yeah, or so... 
Yeah, so I, I always go back to, to traction as well. And so I've worked with you know uh, companies, a big air conditioning manufacturer that was again in that same boat, offering a new line, and they said, you know, we have our tier one partners, you know, car dealers, car dealers, cars, the same kind of relationship. Um, some of the advice there is if you're doing something new, I would recommend if you can bypass the intermediary for now, because if you look at a B2B2C environment, your end user is actually, again, in that multi-sided market. They are the lowest common denominator. If you create something that adds no value to them, they're not going to buy. Your partner's not going to carry your product, and everything kind of falls apart. So if you can find a way to, to um, either own that relationship or go direct to the end user and study them, and that's why Toyota doesn't just go to their dealers and say, so what car should we build next year? They actually go and do all the research. They, do the, the, they, they come down and talk to drivers, and they do a lot of tests with them because they're trying to figure that out. Um, and then the dealers are their, their, their intermediary partners. So in any of those relationships, there's a what's in it for me. So the, the customer, the end user has a value proposition, which is you build a better pro solution to their problem. Um, and then your intermediary partner um, is going to want to sell more of that solution. And so if you can go back to them with even early traction, you can then make that relationship be much stronger than it would be if you just go to them in the first place with a very risky idea. And what I hear you saying is the end user, that, that C in the B2B2C context, is the one that creates the value that everybody else is feeding off of to some That's degree. Right. So I think people forget that a lot. And it's hard for you know, B2B companies to think that way. They can yeah. go to the end customer and ask those hard questions and then drive value through the value chain. Yeah, just um, pick up the phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, OK, next, next question. We have quite a number of questions, so I want to keep going. Um, what if you have multiple teams running within a complex, large enterprise, multiple value propositions and customer segments? Do you use multiple canvases? How do you handle you know, parallel pathing? Yeah, so in running you know, in my blog, I've got this picture that shows the search process. And in there, on the left-hand side, you will see multiple canvases. Because again, just like we don't know who our early adopters are, we don't sometimes know which business model is the right one. So do we go after customer segment A or B or problem one or problem two, solution one or solution two? So part of the, the brainstorming exercise, that planning exercise at the beginning, is to think of the canvas like Lego blocks. So really create lots of models, lots of different variants. Um, and the nice thing is that when you put yourself in this mindset that I don't have to build a solution but an offer, you can go and test those things very quickly. And you can split test your business models against each other and see which ones get get more traction, get, get more interest. And so whether you do that as one team working on two or three ideas in parallel in the beginning, or you have more resources that can split out, all of those are, 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 are great ways to tackle that search process. OK, so I'm going to switch completely here, because I think this is one of the best questions I've ever seen come in. Our conversations with customers pre and post MVP launch have, pre and post MVP launch have always been positive, yet growth is very slow. We ask, what are we missing? But all we hear is, great, everything's great. <laughs> what can we be asking, and how can we get answers? I love this question, by the way, whoever asked yeah. it. Yeah, and there was a great LinkedIn post not too long ago about someone who killed an idea, even though his investors wanted to give him more money to go and, and figure it out. Um, but fundamentally, they found, and it was the same exact thing. They, their customers love them. Uh, when you ask a customer, what's wrong with my product, this is a great Steve Jobs quote, customers don't know what they want. Um, so they will often, and in his case, he found that they were coming up with all kinds of feature ideas, which were, you know, we want to help, so why don't you build this instead? But fundamentally, the usage metrics weren't there. 
So again, we talk about create, deliver, and capture value. The leading indicator of customers growing and using your product is that engagement has to be there, retention has to be there. And so in your product, I would look at that data first to see why aren't people using that. And if you go and ask them why aren't you using it, they may not know exactly, but that's because maybe there isn't a critical enough job that you are getting that, that you're promising to get done for them. It's not part of their critical path. And so even though they may like you and they may like the product even, they just don't are not getting value out of it. So, so it's it's a it's a great question, and it's sometimes the, the hard answer is that you have to figure out uh, you have to figure out what job is your problem is your is your solution really doing for your customers, and how does it fit into their existing workflow? And if it doesn't, even though they may want to use your product, it just is not something that will will stick uh, for them. And I'd like to add just in, just as on top of that is. You know, there's one really quick test that you can start to ascertain whether or not you're getting the right information you need from those customers, and that is, will they put skin in the game? Will they give you something significant that actually means they're on the path to purchase? And it's, it may not be their time. In some instances, time yeah. is a very good quotient for that. But sometimes they're telling you, yeah, 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 I like, I like, I like, and have no intention of buying. So sure. put them on the line, ask them somehow, pre-order, whatever, whatever that metric is, right? Sure. Uh, okay, more questions. Here we go. Um, once you've I, once you identify a problem after multiple customer interviews, how do you decide it's worth solving? Yeah. So so this is where um, in the first book it was very qualitative, which is you know we go and run a bunch of interviews. When we feel like we have learned enough, we are we're going off and and we're we're building the MVP. Then when we feel like we have reached product market fit, it was a very qualitative process. You kind of know. Um, in the next book, I try to make that somewhat more quantitative. So the idea is that if you start with the minimum success criteria at like a revenue goal, you want to figure out what are those customer behaviors. And if those of you that are fans of Dave McClure's Pirate Metrics, I'm a big fan as well. Like what does acquisition need to look like? What does retention need to look like? Activation need to look like? We can actually build a model as well. Um, I, I call it a customer traction model. And then we can bring that down um, a few orders of magnitude. So we start off with this thinking that if I can't get, so I'll use a, a great example, maybe that will illustrate this. Um, if we looked at the way Facebook started, Facebook didn't launch to the whole world. They launched on one college campus. But they could show some incredible engagement metrics and their acquisition, all of those, those metrics were healthy. But the obvious question is, does this only work on one college campus? Does it work on others? So let's go and you know, launch to two or three more colleges. I did three more after that. And they were able to repeat that. So repeatability, very important. And those leading indicators of those traction metrics, very, very important. So I would kind of use that to tell the business model story. And if you have repeatability on your side, you can then extrapolate to something larger from there. And so Facebook, for that reason, was able to go to their investors and paint a very solid story on how they could repeatably go to any college campus and so give us money. So they had figured out, again, what are the right um, things they need to do to make people adopt the product. And they could then go and, and roll that out. And that's the best way to, um, to kind of pitch a story, which is we have cracked kind of the, the system to go and build here, rather than you know, just pitch a business model without the metrics. Where, are, where can people go to find more information about whether or not they're gaining traction relative to other businesses in their industry or in their type? Are there, any solutions for that? Because often people don't even know what's a good metric and what's a bad metric, even if it's a leading metric. Yes. No, and, and that's a, so that's the number one reason I get for people not making declarations because they're like, I don't even know where to start. 
Um, it could so, have been this, right? Yeah. Yes. So I, I'm I'm launching a new iPhone app. Never done it. You know, what should I even measure? I, I, what should I even like make as a as a declaration? Um, so there. So so some of this information can be gleaned more publicly. So I, I this idea of the analog. Go and figure out what similar types of businesses to yours are out there. Some of them report these numbers on their blog. Some of them report them on Wall Street. Um, you're not going to get all the details, but you might get some to get started with. So in the SaaS world, we know what are healthy churn rates, for instance. Um, if you're in a social network, we know what engagement metrics are these days and what, what that currency exchange rate is. Um, so you can start with some of those types of things. Um, but oftentimes, I'll tell people, if you don't have anything to go on, just make the wildest guess to begin with. And the more important thing is to write that number down, both you and your team, run an experiment, um, and then come back and talk about why you were way off and how next time you may want to make more educated guesses. And I guarantee that after two or three of those iterations, make the iteration small, so two weeks, three weeks at a time, I guarantee that you will understand your customers better than anyone else. Um, so I do a lot of content marketing. We do email marketing. And I can look at average email open rates and I will say that you know we, we it's a very big range, but if you ask me what are my specific metrics, I can give you that number, and that's the more actionable number, and that's just from running and sending out you know by now thousands of emails and measuring those those rates over time. So you actually so you actually become the expert in your own metrics, and the sooner you just start measuring it, um, the better you will get at at what makes makes sense in your business. So here's the last question. In your experience, at what stage have you been able to make the decision to change your business model versus drop your business model or plan? Kind of in terms of time frame, how have you seen that take place in reality? Yeah. So I, I tend to um, I, yes, yeah, so I, I tend to build, build this traction model with all my ideas, and I look at the minimum success criteria, which for me is three years out. So I will take an idea, and I will say, in three years, if I was launching a book, I need to see these many books sold, and then I'll bring that in order of magnitude. So with my last book, I wanted to sell 10,000 books, say, in uh, in two or three years. So I would start off with what will it take me to sell a thousand books, and I will create some kind of a time box for it. So the idea is to take a time box not too far in the, out in the future, bring it into something that's ideally, I bring it all the way down to a 90-day type of a thing. So when I'm starting with a new idea, for me, I, I have to get the problem solution fit, which is getting a customer to say, yes, I want this product, and not one customer, but enough that comes from that traction model that tells me whether this can even work or not. Because if I get invalidation, I'm going to kill the idea, but if I do, validation doesn't guarantee I'll scale, but at least it puts me, it gives me permission to go to the next stage. So I look at it as a stage type of a thing. So initially, your first 30, your first 90 days, I should say, is very critical. You need to get the problem solution fit. And then after that, you, you look to see how can we now level up. So how can we increase the rate at which we are bringing in more customers or creating more of that monetizable value? And you're constantly asking yourself that pivot, persevere, reset question with your stakeholders, with your team. Um, whether you do this monthly or you do it bi-monthly, that's completely up to you. But that's how we, we judge all of our ideas. And as with any plan, things are going to change. So we're not going to, you know, where you end up is not always going to be where you start out. But that's how the plan kind of evolves. And that conversation is really what helps you figure out whether you stick with the original plan, which almost always never works as planned, but or you or you figure something else out or you change very drastically from there. Awesome. Okay, Ash, thank you so much for your time today. I do want to help our readers learn more about kind of your thoughts and ideas because this is just a teaser to your book, Scaling Lean. 
where can they find your book on the shelf or where can they order it? Sure. So the so the book is on sale everywhere. So it's you can find it on Amazon and all okay. other bookstores. Um, since it's launch week, we are kind of running a few promotions. So if you are interested, you can check it out at scalinglean.com, um, and that's just uh, that would be something we're doing for the first and second week of the launch. Awesome. All right, Ash. Thanks again for your time, and uh, can't wait to continue this discussion at the Lean Startup Conference. All right. Thank you. It was a pleasure, thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. This wraps up our show. Please join us again for the next webcast in July. For San Francisco Bay Area folks, we're hosting our first Lean Startup Night community meetup on June 24th in San Francisco. Check out our Twitter page for more details. We're at Lean Startup. In the meantime, visit leanstartup.co for more information on Lean Startup Week in San Francisco on October 31st to November 6th.